Our scripture is Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. The priesthood of all believers. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. There is a fallacy that the doctrine of the priesthood of believers is just a New Testament doctrine and that the Reformation brought it to light. Actually, it is a doctrine that goes back to the Old Testament and was very important throughout the Old Testament and in the early church. The verses which we read formulate this doctrine as the prelude to the giving of the law, the condition of being a priesthood unto God is obedience. Now, before we go further, it is important to call attention to the fact that there are different words used for priest in the Bible, in the Old and New Testament. The word that is used for priest in the sense of someone who officiates at animal sacrifices is never used where scripture speaks about the priesthood of all believers. That word which applied to the priesthood of Aaron is never used in the New Testament with respect to Christians. So that when Christians are told that they are a royal priesthood, the word that is used has no reference to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It is a different kind of priesthood, a permanent one. One that offers up, we are told in the New Testament, sacrifices of thanksgiving and of service. Now, similarly, here in the Old Testament, all the people, not just the priesthood of Aaron, are told that if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar or unique treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Ye shall be a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Thus the condition of being a priesthood unto God, the condition of the priesthood of all believers is obeying his law and keeping his covenant. This then is a basic aspect of the priesthood of believers. Without obedience to the law and the covenant, no valid priesthood of believers can exist. 
This priesthood is conditional upon obedience to the covenant law of God at all times. Moreover, repeatedly, both in the Old and the New Testament, we have what seems to be a scrambling of terms. Not a royal nation and a holy priesthood, but a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This goes against our natural tendency to associate royalty in the nation and holiness in the priesthood. The point, of course, is that the condition of the priesthood already is holiness, obedience, righteousness in terms of the law. And holiness is coupled with the nation in order to make people ever mindful that Faith is not something that belongs off in a corner in a synagogue or in the temple or in a church, but in every place, most certainly in the nation. The nation has an obligation to be godly, even as the individual and the church. Then, a kingdom of priests, other times a royal priesthood. Again, this goes against our natural tendency, this coupling of the work. But again, there is a purpose in this. We are a royal priesthood and a kingdom of priests. Because our priesthood is not restricted to the church or to the home or to those areas of life that we choose to say are holy areas. It belongs to the whole of life. And the kingdom has reference to the kingdom of God. God rule everywhere. The priesthood of all believers, therefore, is a doctrine with relevancy to more than just a few areas of life. Whether it is agriculture, or business, or science, or education, or politics, anything and everything. There, the priesthood of all believers must be manifested. The goal of us is to be a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar or unique people, as First Peter, the second chapter, verses 5 and 9, declare. The goal of this priesthood is, according to Revelation 5.10 and Revelation 26, to reign on earth. To manifest the rule of God on earth in every area. The instruments of this reign are God's law. And the sacrifices are the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, according to Romans 12, 1 and Hebrews 13, 15. Now the believer priest of the Old Testament served as a ruler-priest over his household and in his calling. The same requirement holds today. It is an abdication of man's role that too often it is the women who assume the religious responsibilities in the home. It's the man's duty. The man has a priestly responsibility. 
and he must lead the family in all matters pertaining to the faith. Moreover, in the Old Testament, it was the believer's responsibility, the believer priest's responsibility, to establish the teaching of the Word of God and organize worship in synagogues. How was this done? Exodus 18.20 gives us the charter for all establishments of local worship in the Old Testament. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. Now this verse, throughout the days before our Lord's coming, was seen as the charter for the establishment of synagogues or local worship, and also for establishing religious schools. And very rightly so, because prior to the giving of the law, not only were they called to be a royal priesthood, but they were called upon to establish organized religion, churches or synagogues, and schools. Now, it is interesting to examine precisely how the synagogues were established in the Old Testament, and to a degree still are, although they have been getting away from this and lax with respect to it. The synagogues, or the places of local worship, were not organized from headquarters by a hierarchy. They were organized by believer priests. Any ten believers who came together could organize a synagogue. Any ten men. And it was incumbent upon them. It was a synagogue or a church because the word in the Bible is really the same. When ten men came together, not when a rabbi came, when the ten men came together and organized it. In other words, the responsibility was on the believer priest. Today we've reversed it, have we not? It's the church when a bishop or a presbytery or a conference says, go to now, we're going to establish a first church or a 23rd church here in this particular neighborhood, then it's a church. This exactly reverses the procedure that was established in the Old Testament. Now, the number 10 was a choice that was arbitrary, but it was basically sound. It kept the priority in the hands of the believer priest. They organized the church. We know that in the early church it was similar. That churches met in homes. True, they were organized only after 
some apostle or evangelist went into the area and preached to them. But the organization depended upon the local believers. The church had its roots in them, in their faith. This is an important point because today while lip service is paid to the priesthood of all believers, there is scarcely a church that pays much attention to it. The priesthood of all believers thus meant what has been called an every believer ministry. Ephesians 4, 7 speaks of this, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. All men, having been called in Christ by their regeneration to be a priesthood, each has a measure of grace according to the gift of Christ and is required to use it and to develop that gift, not to bury it, as in the parable of the talent. Thus, the priesthood of all believers is more than just a theological doctrine. It has a very practical purpose, as does the church, as does the state, as does the school, as does every agency in a Christian society. It calls for more than a mere profession of faith. Just recently, I read the statement by a top clergyman in one church who said that it was a sin for anyone to leave a denomination when the profession of faith was orthodox. Now, this is nonsense. It would be easy to go over the list of churches that still have an orthodox profession of faith. I don't believe the Methodist Church has ever changed there. The Episcopal Church still subscribes to the 39 Articles. The Presbyterian, United Presbyterian Church only lately added to its confession, so it was technically orthodox until a year or two ago. And we could go on down the list of churches that are technically orthodox. St. James had something to say about that. He declared, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? St. James put his finger on it. So they profess the orthodox faith. But faith without works is dead. And it is important, therefore, that the priesthood of the, all believers be geared not only to faith but to works as well. It is geared not to the church but to the kingdom of God. Dr. Van Til, in writing on the kingdom of God, has called it man's highest good. And he wrote, I quote, By the term kingdom of God, we mean the realized program of God for man.
We would think of man as adopting for himself this program of God as his own ideal and as setting and keeping his powers in motion in order to reach that goal that has been set for him and that he has set for himself. We propose briefly to look at this program which God has set for man and which man should have set for himself. The most important aspect of this program is surely that man should realize himself as God's vicegerent in history. Man was created God's vicegerent, and he must realize himself as God's vicegerent. There is no contradiction between these two statements. Man was created a character, and yet he had to make himself even more of a character. So we may say that man was created a king in order that he might become more of a king than he was." Unquote. Thus, the purpose of man's calling is that he realize himself as a king, priest, and prophet under God, and dedicate himself in his areas of dominion and his calling to God and to the service of God's kingdom. Man's self-realization is only possible when man fulfills his priestly calling. The priesthood of all believers, thus, is a very important doctrine. In this day, when so much is made of democracy, we as Christians can see the fallacy of democracy. Because democracy puts the power in the people and authority in the people without dealing with the fact that man is a sinner. But the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers realizes far more than the doctrine of democracy because it recognizes that it is a priesthood to God. It recognizes that all authority belongs to God. But then it declares that institutions cannot play the role of God. They cannot be the be-all and the end-all of life. It is not man's calling to build a super church or a super state or a super school. None of these things can take priority. All of them tend to take priority and they feel we are the key, we are the answer, so all of you people get in and build us up priesthood of all believers makes emphatic that authority remains with God, but the primary area of action is in the life and work of the believer, his faith applied and developed in terms of the realities of everyday life. This is why our country thrived in its early years, because it was grounded on the priesthood of all believers. When that doctrine was secularized, made into the doctrine of democracy, then we began rapidly to decay. Between the two concepts, there is a superficial resemblance, but a vast difference. Democracy will always fail. The priesthood of believers can, under God, 
establish and develop the implications of God's kingdom. It can meet the requirements of God's calling and magnify his holy name. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou hast called us to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Our Lord and our God, we confess that too often we have established and bowed down before idols of our own making. We have made of church, state, school, and other institutions idols and images, and have exalted them, and as thy priests we should have exalted thee in thy kingdom. Recall us, O Lord, to thy calling. Make us strong therein and effectual unto the tearing down of the things which are on the building of those things which are of thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. Yes. Today the state is making itself into a god, even to zoning how many churches in some areas can be permitted. You do have, on all sides, institutions playing God. Yes. Yes. Yes, that's a very good point. Uh, and you are right. We are by nature so created that we are priests. And men will either be priests unto God or they will be priests unto Satan. It is man's nature to bow down, to glorify something. He will either do it with the Lord or with Satan or with himself. Priesthood is an inescapable aspect of our nature. Yes. has reference to the fact that you have many storefront and neighborhood Negro churches that proliferate. How shall we view these? It is true that many of these are 
seriously defective theologically have very vague ideas about what uh, they should believe. However, all the same we must say that sometimes there's more religion in some of these groups than in the big Negro denominations which are pretty far to the left and our civil rights affairs. An interesting thing has happened in this area that I think is most revealing. Africa has been the target of very heavy missionary operations for a century or more now. And the work has been uphill, difficult, and slow. Well, the interesting thing about the last ten years is the African countries have gained freedom is the amazing growth of Christian groups in Africa. In many areas, the missionary operations have closed down. But now that the missionary work is up to the natives themselves, there has been a burst of energy in Africa that is unparalleled. Now, a lot of these groups are uh, very hard to call anything orthodox. They're a problem to, for example, the Catholic Church because it has seen a remarkable growth and its bishops are really not under the control of Rome because they can ordain and send out men and they're doing it with very little supervision from Rome. And the same is true of whether they're Lutheran or Presbyterian or Baptist. They're running things themselves. But with all of the heretical and uh, unhappy tendencies, there is a very real amount of real faith that is being propagated and is growing. So Africa is in for very difficult years ahead because there are already signs that there will be the outbreak of religious warfare there. Conflict in Nigeria has strong overtones of an, a war against Christians and the warfare against the evil tribes. So that the vitality of the priesthood of believers has established itself there. There's no getting around that. We cannot, because there are defects, say that we must do away with a way. And this is the way that God has ordained. When you create churches from the top, you tend to create a people, therefore, who lack any real power and vitality. They're too used to being told from above every time they're to sneeze. Are there any other questions?
Well, I'd like to pass on a couple of things uh, to you, which I've been reading first in a lighter vein and then somewhat more serious. I read very recently a delightful book entitled Warm and Snug, The History of the Bed. And there are many very delightful and amusing passages in it. And this tickled me especially. Uh, I'd say the most delightful passages that were those that dealt with England. It is written by an Englishman. Of a lady in England, very well-to-do, who was very much the country gentlewoman, very much attached to her livestock, and living on this very beautiful estate, and this was not too long ago, she became a little bit peculiar. It speaks of her, the, uh, uh, at the age of 70, took to her bed with a severe nosebleed. When the doctor came, this had ceased, but she now complained of a pain in her spine. On examination, he unearthed the cause, a huge rusty iron key, which she had bid the coachman bring from the stable and drop down her back to cure the nosebleed. In the process, uh, the doctor's fingers were bitten by one of the four spaniels hidden under the bedclothes. His next visit was even more memorable. He entered the manor house and found the stairs covered with planks and his patient's bed, at his patient's bedside a cow and a pail. Her prized Jersey cow was temperamental and would let nobody else milk it. Then this bit about the actor Peter O'Toole, I found uh, very strange. I think he must have stopped for ale somewhere on this hike through the countryside. The actor Peter O'Toole has told how he and a companion hiking from Stratford to London wormed their way after dark deep into a haystack, becoming only gradually aware towards dawn that it was in fact a manure heap. <laughs> For combined physical and moral discomfort, uh, this is noteworthy, but for purely moral discomfort, consider the ordeal of a certain fellow of the Society of Antiqu Antiquaries and his wife, likewise hiking in a severe fog and in search of a secluded de uh, dell in which to lay their sleeping bags. Rejecting one spot after another, they grew weary, and in intense darkness, they settled for a grassy couch under a spreading tree. They awoke next morning in sunlight to find themselves on a small green triangle in a busy supper, already the object of interest to the school doors, and faced with the choice of rising and dressing in public or cowering in their bags, deaf to all inquiry until night should fall again. Then, in the section on uh, 
Pullmans, I thought this was interesting. The Pullman car for trains was invented in the United States very early in the 1840s. But it was 30 years later that it, before it was introduced into England. And even then, for many years, no Englishman would use it. In those days, train accidents were not too uncommon. An American visitor found the reason. He wrote home, These are the first sleeping cars in use in this country, but there is no difficulty in getting a berth. They are exclusively patronized by Americans. An Englishman has a horror of being pitched into eternity in his underclothes. And they don't know who this man Pullman is. Then in a more serious vein, I thought this article by Dr. George F. Carter, a very outstanding scholar at Texas A&M University, is very, very interesting. It's the mystery of milk intolerance. And I'll just read portions of it. Scholars have long known that many people, such as the Chinese, keep cows but do not milk them. Other people use milk in fermented forms, such as yogurt, butter, or ghee, and the Africans tend to bleed their cows instead of milking them, preferring to drink blood instead of milk. It has always been thought that this illustrated how variable man's culture could be. Now it appears that there is a serious reason for this. Most races of mankind cannot drink milk. Negroes, Mongols, Indians, both the Indians of Asia and those of America, say that milk makes them bilious and causes diarrhea. Milk in schools may have to be segregated. The reason is that there is such a thing as intolerance of milk, sugar, lactose. One cause is the inability to hydrolyze lactose, that is, to break down the milk sugar to simpler sugars. This occurs in infants, but is even more common in adults. Such individuals can absorb a little milk, as in tea or coffee, but a whole glass full can cause distress. Studies of Negroes and whites in America show that 90% of the Negroes and 10% of the whites could not tolerate milk. Most of these people had drunk milk when they were young. But the Negroes become milk intolerant in adolescence. Orientals and American Indians show the same pattern. And in Africa, it has proven possible to separate tribes as Negro, mixed, or Caucasoid, some of the Hamites, on the basis of milk tolerance or intolerance. And then he goes on to say that uh, this is a very significant difference, and there are differences even within Europe in the milk tolerance. And he makes it clear that this is not environmental. An individual simply is tolerant or intolerant toward milk, and most Northwest Europeans are tolerant throughout life. Most of the rest of mankind develops an intolerance of milk in adolescence. If Negroes and Orientals living in the same, 
uh, living in America have the same intolerance as the people in their original homelands, explanations based on diet, health, housing, and so forth seem very unlikely. One is left then with genetic differences. Northwest Europeans are born with a trait of milk tolerance throughout their lives instead of just in infancy. The differences then are not environmental, cultural, or economic, and they cannot be changed by raising living standards or free milk programs. Such findings as these show that racial differences are more than skin deep. But equally interesting, this difference cuts across some race lines. For the Northwest Europeans are quite different from Southeast Europeans. We obviously have yet much to learn about man and this startling finding of localized milk intolerance should lead us to consider carefully the suggestion that there may be a focus of alcohol intolerance in this same area. The point he makes, of course, is that this is beginning to show itself up already in school integration and that the free milk program is creating real problems in uh, the upper grade among those who have a milk intolerance as colored children do. So that, he says, this is just one of many indications that we must reconsider some of our current thinking which equates all people and makes no note of very real differences. Are there any questions before we adjourn? We have one announcement to make, a reminder of the Central Seminar. We've had a very good registration thus far, so if you are planning to come, get your registration in soon. It will be Saturday the 20th at Not Very Farm, the Chicken House, from 3 to 9 p.m. It includes dinner. Yes. Oh, there will be another meeting of the Chalcedon Guild, but not a dinner meeting. There will be a meeting on February the 11th, Thursday night, in Santa Monica, 401 Wilshire, the First Federal Savings and Loan, in their meeting room. And I shall be continuing the studies in magic and witchcraft. Eight o'clock, I believe. You'll get a notice of it, but I'm quite sure it's eight. Yes. 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 Uh, the Mankind Quarterly, a journal of physical anthropology, some time ago went into the reason for the superiority and the strength. It has something to do with the heel structure of African people, so that they have a superiority in the strength, but not in, say, the mile. In long races, they're very uh, much at a handicap. Now, the that, that is, that 
Yes, by and large, those who were brought to this country were inferior tribes. They were sold by Africans, and they were really the money of Africa. A very limited number of the superior ones would be sold to be foremen. But most of those that were sold as slaves by Africans themselves were among the most inferior tribes of Africa. Well, let's bow our heads for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.